Let's pray. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts now be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. At the top of your message outline, you see uh, a quote by a guy named Gore Vidal. And it kind of uh, encapsulates what we're going to talk about today. The quotation says, it's not enough that I succeed, my friends have to fail. Now think about that mo a moment, you probably say, that's a really selfish attitude. Well, today we are wrapping up our current series on American Idols with a look at the most devastating and perhaps the most dangerous of all American Idols, and that is selfishness. Selfishness is the culprit behind all of the other idols that we have talked about in these last couple of weeks. It is selfishness, for example, that fuels our desires for things and our pursuit of pleasure, and it drives drives us toward this so-called success that we talked about last week. Selfishness, if you think about it, is at the root of every sin. It's choosing God's way or choosing uh, our way over God's way. It is saying that what I want is more important than what anybody else wants, including God. Selfishness is also at the root of every relationship problem. I've been a pastor for nearly 25 years now, and in that time, I have counseled a lot of couples, but I have uh, never once encountered a couple whose marriage was on the rocks because they were too unselfish with each other. I've never once encountered a couple on the brink of divorce because they were looking out for each other too much. In fact, I can remember talking to a couple a number of years ago that were in the midst of splitting up. The wife said, this marriage has got to come to an end because I'm not happy. The husband said, you know, I'll do anything I can do to make this marriage right because I want to be with you. I love you. And she said, well, I'm sorry, but I, I went out of this. And he said, but you said you would be with me until death do us part. And she said, but I didn't know I would be this unhappy. Now, like all marital problems, friends, the situation is complicated. This man had his flaws. He was not perfect. But she wanted out of the marriage, not because he was unfaithful, not because he was abusive, but because she was unhappy. And what mattered to her more than anything else was that she would feel happy. That's where salvation tends to take relationships. The tendency towards this meism or eye disease, as I like to call it, you know, I want this and I want that goes back to the very beginning, to Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, where Adam and Eve saw, remember, the fruit of the tree was a delight to the eye and desirable to make one wise. It was then that they decided they didn't care what God had to say. They wanted what they wanted more than God wanted. This mentality is also captured in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. It says, For the world offers the lust for physical pleasure, the lust for everything we see and pride in our possessions. See, it comes down to this. This is selfishness. I don't care what God says. I don't care what God wants. I want what I want when I want it. And if you don't think this attitude finds its way into church, take a look at this little clip.
laugh about that, but I wonder how true it is, how often we think it's all about me. I've actually heard that a few times after church. I don't know why they don't sing the songs I like. <laughs> I don't know why somebody's sitting where I normally sit. <laughs> I like to keep the temperature at 72. <laughs> I should be able to go first. A lot of eyes. It happens all over the place. Let's talk a little bit about the problem with selfishness. It's a, it turns us into robbers and thieves when you think about it. And here's what I mean. First of all, selfishness is really stealing from other people. You know, as believers in Jesus, we are really obligated to live a life of love, both loving God and loving other people. The Bible goes so far as to say that it's a debt we owe. In Romans 13, it says, owe no man anything but love. I mean, if you're going to owe anybody anything, owe them a little bit more love. In Galatians, Paul said, share each other's troubles and problems. In this, we obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone in need, you are only, what, fooling yourself. So we're not there for other people. When we don't help those people who are closest to us, we are refusing to pay a debt of love. We are refusing to pay what we owe. And we, that refusal to pay, well, what else are you going to call it but stealing? In the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been looking at this a lot in the last number of weeks, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, if you see a poor, poor person being oppressed by the powerful and justice miscarried throughout the land, don't be surprised, for every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice only get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. Boy, I'm tempted to say something political after that. Sounds awful familiar in our land today. Selfishness, taking from one and not giving it to others, but just taking it. Well, stealing is also, or selfishness is also stealing from God. Think about your life for a moment. Your life is a gift from God. You can live your life any way you choose to live it. But when you become a follower of Christ, I'm just, I'll make it very personal. Now we've got young JJ over here. He's a follower of Christ. He can live his life any way he wants to. You may not like it someday, but he can do it. He's probably pretty good at it already. But he can live his life any way he wants to. But the moment you become a follower of Christ, you're literally giving your life back to him. That's exactly why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you don't belong to yourself, you were bought 
with a price. See, when you live for yourself, when you ignore what he wants you to do in order to do what you want to do, you're taking something that actually belongs to God. And Solomon warned us about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He said, when you make a promise to God, don't delay in following through, for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to him. It's better to say nothing than to promise something that you don't follow through on. And I suppose I could make another application. You know, you two made some promises this morning. In case you didn't remember it, I put it in print. And you got a copy. Matthew, you and Jennifer made some promises this morning. People at First Lutheran, unless you just sat there, made some promises this morning when it came to baptism. You said you would pray for your godchild. You said you would bring him to the services of God's house. You told him that you would, you would you, this congregation, you said you would do whatever you could to see to it that he's raised to know Jesus. Those are promises. And here Solomon is saying, it's better to say nothing than to make that kind of a promise. Of course, maybe that's why the pastor's around, to hold you accountable, because God's going to hold me accountable for holding you accountable. Selfishness is stealing from God. Here's another one. Selfishness is stealing from yourself. You know, it's no coincidence that the root word for miserable is miser. I mean, selfishness leads to misery. It robs you of that fullness of joy that God would love to have you have. And in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon talks about the years he spent taking care of himself. If you know anything about the story of Solomon, Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. He was the smartest man who ever lived. But he lived like an absolute fool. I mean, he went so far. I mean, he said, I'm going to try everything. I got the money. I got the time to do it. I mean, it was wine, women, and songs, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, however you want to put it. He said, I can do that. But listen to what he said at the end. He came to a conclusion in Ecclesiastes 2.11. As I looked at everything I had worked at so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. I've seen a bumper sticker that said, remember, at the end of your life, it all goes back in the box. We talked about this last week. You know, you can spend your whole, whole life chasing after money, and guess what? You're just leaving it behind for other people to mess with. You steal from yourself. It leads to misery. Well, the question is, how do you destroy this idol of selfishness? Well, so far, let me just take you back a little bit. This is what we learned thus far if you've been here for four Sundays. We talked about the idol of materialism, gathering stuff, that we've always got to have so much stuff. I mean, our houses are so full of stuff that our garages are full of stuff. And sometimes we got so much stuff we rent, what? We rent little rooms in these little storage places for more of our stuff. And if that's not enough, we palm it off on our kids so they can take care of our stuff. Or we build bigger barns for our stuff. Well, you know, then one day we find out we're on that reality show called Hoarders. Well, how do we kill that, that idol of materialism? We said it comes through that spiritual power of contentment to say, this is enough. <clears throat> I thank God for what God has given me now. You know, having food and raiment, the Bible says, therewith be content. 
in week two, we talked about the idol of pleasure. And that, it, we hear that so often. You, know, you only go around once in life, grab all the gusto you can. If it feels good, do it. I mean, none of us wants to experience any pain whatsoever. Oh, I hurt. I better run to the doctor and get some medication. That way I won't feel it anymore. Or I feel really bummed out. I think about two or three or eight or ten beers would help. That would help me not feel that pain anymore. We always have to have pleasure. Well, how do you destroy that? We said that's with the spiritual power of hope. My hope is built on nothing less, that hymn says, but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Therein lies my hope. I thought about that this last week when I was, like many of you, going through that period of grief, you know, in losing two elders of our church in the span of about 10 days. There's a lot of residual grief that still resides within this congregation. I know there is. I know there is because you all knew Clyde and Lynn longer than I did, and I know how I feel after two and a half years of knowing these men. I sat in my office when I heard that Clyde died, and I cried. When I heard that Lynn died, I sat in my office, and I cried. And there was a selfish time where I thought, I'm going to need to provide comfort for everybody else. Who's going to comfort me? Well, I do thank you for your prayers and your concern, but I ran across something the other day in the midst of pain because, you know, when you're in the midst of pain, you can sometimes succumb to some pretty silly stuff. I was reading in my daily Bible reading in First Chronicles, and it came to that story of Jabez. You all remember Jabez? I mean, Bruce Wilkerson wrote a whole book about him, The Prayer of Jabez. And a lot of people bought that book, and the, the, the big thing about The Prayer of Jabez was that God would bless me and expand my kingdom. And everybody's running out because if we get our lives lined up right and we God blesses us, our kingdom will expand and money just become rolling in. And I think, I'm not going to argue with him about that, but he, he missed something there in that little story. Jabez, I don't know if you ever thought about why you named that little nipper Jason. Well, daddy. But you know what Jason means? Because Jabez means pain. How'd you like to say, come here, a little pain? Hey, pain, get over here. He was a man of pain. His life was, he was like a pain magnet. But if you read that story of Jabez again, when it talks about bless me so that my area might be increased, it says, but in my pain, O Lord, I cried out to you and you heard me and you answered. See, there's the answer, isn't it? To all of your pain, cry out to the Lord and he will hear you and he will answer you. Maybe I should write a book about that. We put that up again. No, I'm not going to do that against the other book, but it's just a thought. Where was I at? I don't remember. I was going through where we've been. Uh, we talked about the idol of success last week, how we worship success so much that we actually worship our jobs. And we said that the way to defeat that is through that spiritual power of missional living. I mean, looking out for other people, uh, to share the love of Jesus with other people. Now, how do we destroy the idol of selfishness? By through the spiritual power of compassion. Compassion is defined as that deep awareness and that sympathy for another person's suffering. 
I say this every time I come up to compassion. My wife's heard this a thousand times. It's my favorite Greek word in the whole Bible. Splunknitsomai. I, I love that word the first time I ever heard it. Splunknitsomai. It's compassion. Jesus had compassion on the city. It means his guts churned within him. You ever see something that it, it just, you know, you see these little kids on television with their little bloated bellies and the little flies around them over in these countries. And you look at them, it just, it makes you sick to your stomach. You just wish you could do something for these people. That's compassion. It's been defined as understanding without judgment. Now, nearly every time that word compassion is used in the Bible, it refers to the attitude that God has to us. In Psalm 72, it says, He'll have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy He will save. Or Lamentations 3.22, For the Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for His compassions never fail. One of the very few times, though, that it is directed toward us is in today's scripture reading, Colossians 3.12. It says, put on a heart of compassion. It says, you need to be compassionate. That's how you break this role, this idol of selfishness. Become a compassionate person. Now, how do you do that? How do you become a compassionate person? Well, let me give you three ways in closing. Number one is just to get serious about the golden rule. You know, most of us probably learned the golden rule by the time we were in, in kindergarten. What I like about the golden rule is that it applies as much to a 5-year-old as it does to a 15-year-old or to a 35-year-old or a 65-year-old or an 85-year-old or whatever. You all remember how the golden rule goes? Or maybe some of you live by the silver rule. You know what the silver rule is. Do unto others before they get a chance to do it unto you. No, that's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the golden rule. How does it go? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, here's how it appears in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. This, friends, is empathy. This is compassion. It goes hand in hand. We need to learn how to ask, if I were this person, I mean, look at that, that sad little face there. If I were that person, for example, in that situation, what would help me most? What would I want other people to do for me? I mean, think about that. The next time you ever see somebody who's just looking, crying or looks really pretty miserable, you know, what would you want them to do if that was you? Would it be to give them a hug? Would it be to pat them on the back and say, yeah, they're there? Yeah, would it be to pray for them? And, and before you start thinking about what you do for strangers, maybe you ought to think about what you're going to do for those who live closest to you, like your spouse or your children, or your parents, or your co-workers, or your colleagues, or your neighbors. I mean, to get serious about the golden rule, it, it, it will help you become a more compassionate person. Sometime this next year, I'm going to do a, a, a series on families and marriage. And uh, some of you know the book, The, the Five Love Languages. And it, it's, really, it's really a neat book because it's probably better for men than women because I, for some reason, women seem to understand this better than us dopey guys do. Uh, you know, but there are five different ways, five different languages that all of us have in relating to one another. And we've got to get on the right page. 
You know, every time your, your wife, guys, is grumpy, don't go out and buy her a box of candy. And that may not be what she needs. Maybe all she needs is just for you to say, I love you. Uh, maybe she just needs you to give her a hug. I mean, it's only taken me 46, going on 47 years, and I'm still struggling with it. Well, I do love you, though, Nancy. Second thing is get serious about forgiveness. See, the refusal to forgive people is motivated by selfishness. This is the feeling that says, my feelings, my hurt feelings matter more than yours. I mean, no matter, they matter more than whether you're right or wrong. They matter more than anything else. Colossians 3, again, if you heard these words that Sue read to you before, it says, bear with each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, a lot of you know that I, I tell people from time to time, you know, build a bridge and get over it. And we need to do that with people. Cut some people some slack. That's, well, that's, maybe that's what Paul is saying here. But I really want to focus on the end part of this where it says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wow. Just as the Lord forgave me. Well, how does God forgive me? How does he forgive you? Well, there you see it in black and white. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Someone has told me one time that God says, I'm going to take away all of your sin. and I'm going to bury it in the deepest part of the ocean. Then I'm going to put up a sign that says no fishing. He doesn't even want to remember it. I mean, you go back to God and say, God, you remember that, that sin I confessed to you several months ago? God's going to go, nope. But will you remember it? Oh, some of you got memories like elephants. Oh, you remember the, the littlest thing somebody ever did. They looked cross-eyed at you in the hall in kindergarten. They took a block out of your pile when you were in preschool. Oh, you remember that. And you're going to carry that to your grave. No, forgive as God forgave you. You know how you learn to forgive and forget? You do it by remembering. Not remembering their sins, not remembering their offenses, but remembering your own. I mean, forget the past. Don't dwell on yesterday's mistakes. Remember how much you've been forgiven. In fact, I have found this, I found this out in life. The most unforgiving people I have ever met I seriously doubt that they understand how much God has forgiven them. In fact, I'm not even sure that unforgiving people ever even think about them having a sin. I mean, how much you've been forgiven. I mean, you're not perfect. There's not a single one of I, I hope this isn't breaking your heart for some of you, but there's not a single perfect person here this morning. And I'm starting right there with Garrett. I go all the way to the back, to Evelyn. There's not a perfect person in this room. And don't look up here and say, well, thank God we got a perfect pastor, because you don't. I don't, know a, I don't know a single perfect pastor in town, even at your church. <laughs> no such thing. Yeah. We were forgiven because we needed it, right? Not because we deserved it. That's how we need to deal with other people. We just forgive other people, and then do our very best, humanly speaking, to forget it. And remembering that will help you. Remember your sins. Here's the third thing, and that's just to get serious about giving. You know, giving is at the very heart of who God is. And it needs to be at the heart of every one of us. You've probably heard this before. How does John 3, 16 begin? 
For God so loved the world that he gave. I mean, God is a giver from the beginning. By his nature, he's a giver. When he saw us in our sins, he gave us his son. This needs to become our nature, too. We just need to get serious about it. Now, I'm not just talking about money, friends. We all need to learn how to be generous in a whole wide variety of ways. I mean, I know some husbands and I know some fathers who are terribly selfish with giving their approval to their children or their wife. You need to begin by practicing some generosity with your family. You need to lavish some praise out on them along with love and acceptance and mercy. I know some employees that the words good job would be a foreign language to them. But you need to be make it a point to be generous to your employees, not just financially, but with words of encouragement and words of gratitude. I'm going to tell you that some of the some of the neatest thing things that I've had that people have given me this last week have come in the forms of emails of all things where people just took the time to write a few words or a few sentences to encourage. I saw the stack of mail that was out at the Lowe's house the other day that came from people, cards and letters from who knows where. It's like a mound. You know, that was a way of giving, a way of, of saying, we appreciate you, we love you. I know Christians who are selfish with their time. They don't want to be inconvenienced by anybody. They don't want to be interrupted by anyone for any reason. But friends, we are called to serve one another. We're called to love one another. Of course, I also know people who are selfish with their money. In fact, a lot of us would fit into that category. Even Martin Luther said the last thing that ever gets converted on a man is his pocketbook. You know, we got a death grip on that baby. Uh, you know, to get serious about giving, I'm just going to suggest two things. I don't care what kind of giving it is, whether it's time or talent and treasure. One of them is just to start where you can. I mean, you cannot be a philanthropist overnight, but you can begin to give a little bit more than you're giving right now. I mean, for example, if you're talking about financial, how about try to increase your giving 1% a month? How about taking just a few extra hours and donate it to a ministry or serve others in some way? Or try saying one good thing every day or uh, one more good thing to everyone every day. And when you say that one good thing, say it with a smile. Give other people the gift of feeling good. So just start where you can. The second thing is give where it hurts. Now, for some people, it's pretty easy to give money. But it is really hard for them to give praise. In fact, for some people, it's almost painful. For other people, it's easy to serve strangers, but it's difficult to spend an evening at home with their family. I mean, just look at the areas right now where you're not giving. The, the types of giving you tend to avoid because it doesn't come easy. And then take those first painful steps towards compassion. Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. That, that could refer to the treasure of your time. That can refer to the treasure of your emotions, that, as well as the treasure of your bank account. See, when you give of yourself to anyone in any way, your heart is quick to follow. That's a biblical truth. If you want to learn to practice compassion, you need to get serious about giving, about giving your life away in the same way that Jesus gave his life away to you. See, Jesus challenges us to live differently than this world. In Matthew 16, it says, If anyone wishes to come after me, and I could stop right there and just say, 
I could have started by saying, who would like to follow Jesus? Well, we, I think all of us would like to say, I'd like to follow Jesus. Okay, then this is what Jesus says to you. If you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up his, your cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake will find it. You know, that, that's a real paradox. Ultimately, the most self-serving thing you can do is to give your life in service to other people. Because when you live for other people, everything starts coming back to you. You know, Jesus told his followers in Mark chapter 10, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he'll receive a hundred times as much now, in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I hope you notice there's a little caveat in there. He said, and persecutions. That's because living your life for other people, friends, is not always easy. Sometimes it's painful to live your life for somebody else. Sometimes it's costly. But Jesus says the rewards are always worth it. So how do you destroy that idol, that idol of selfishness? is by mastering that spiritual power of compassion. Make that your aim. Just to let go of yourself, to embrace the joy of giving to other people and see what God can do in your life. May God grant that for his son's name. Amen.